And we've already read our passage for this morning, uh, Matthew 9:35, and we're going to be making our way through verse 15 of chapter 10. Um, we're at a major transition in the point of the gospel according to Matthew, uh, and a major transition in Jesus' ministry as well. So this is. This is where Jesus kicks in the ministry of the apostles, his 12. Um, and as we look through Matthew 10, specifically over the next two, maybe three weeks, what we're going to be referring to is gospel ministry or maybe even kingdom service. Jesus refers to what he's doing, what he's proclaiming as the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. And so that's really what we're going to be focusing at. There's a lot that takes place in Matthew 10 where there's not a, a great connection to how we do gospel ministry, and, and we'll work all that out. Um, but there's very much a lot of principle that comes out of it. As we, as we see Jesus go and expand his ministry, his work to his apostles— we're going to understand that all that's being done is under the authority of Christ for the sake of the kingdom of God. That's gospel ministry. We've got to, we've got to make sure we understand this. That gospel ministry isn't just what you're going to read in about and study about in Matthew 10. Um, but we can understand that we are called to gospel ministry. And not just in a sort of evangelistic way. But gospel ministry also takes part at home, at work, with your neighbors. Um, it's, it's, it's more than just a going forth out in sort of mission-mindedness. But it's not less than that. But it's how you love your spouse. Raising your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Being Christ-like at the workplace. This is gospel ministry. Kingdom service. Uh, so chapter 10, um, it's really the fundamentals. We're going to pull out fundamentals of what it looks like to serve the kingdom of God in gospel ministry. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through verses 9-35. You know, you got to have to, sometimes you just kind of have to throw out a chapter heading so chapter 10 gets put in there, even though it, and it breaks up what's happening at the end of chapter 9 and then what starts in chapter 10. It's, it's the same setting. It's the same thing that's taking place. You have to understand that the chapter headings were added a long time after that um, the Bible was inspired and written by the Spirit through the apostles. And so we can't, we can't separate the end of 9 through all of 10. So we're, we'll have to walk through verse 35 into chapter 10 and verse 15. And then some principles, maybe a little bit of kingdom doctrine at the end. So let's look at verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So this is on the heels of five amazing chapters three of which Jesus has made made known his authority through his teaching. 
through the proclamation of his word. And that was the Sermon on the Mount, right? Chapters 5, 6, and 7. And what was the statement at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? This guy teaches and proclaims with authority. Unlike the scribes. The scribes were the ones who learned through writing down what was already written. It's as if the hearers say, oh, maybe this guy did more than just pass on. Maybe he's the authority that proclaimed and created. So you've got, the, you've got that authority through the proclaimed word, but then you've got two chapters, 8 and 9, the authority shown through his healing and miracles, showing authority over creation. And, and his, when, he, when he proclaimed his word, he showed authority over morality, what is right and what is wrong. And yes, there is a true standard of right and wrong. And Jesus says, it's my words. And so we see this authority being carried out by Christ in uh, these last five chapters. Uh, and then it continues in verse 35 as he goes and proclaims using his voice to teach and preach, but also in healing every disease and every fl- affliction. But he sort of capstones all of that by calling himself what in, in chapters 8 and 9? The Son of Man. The Son of Man. Uh, in referring to Daniel 7, the prophecy of one who would come up to the Ancient of Days, the Father, and when he comes before the Father, he would be given dominion, a kingdom, and glory. And that kingdom and that dominion, Daniel 7 says, is everlasting and shall not be destroyed. This is who Jesus is calling himself, the Son of Man. So verse 35 is, is, is very much a summation of Jesus' ministry, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom um, and showing his power and authority through his uh, miracles and healing. So he's going about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus came with a specific message, and that message was to go first to Israel, to the Jew. Right? We know Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not afraid of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to the or for, to all who believe, and he makes the statement to the Jew first. As maybe a month ago, we got to this section in Matthew, and we we looked at that reality that the gospel isn't just as we would think of it coming to the world to save sinners, but it began with God fulfilling His promise to Israel, the lost sheep as of Israel, as we see here in verse 36. Right when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. The crowd was a, it was Israelites, it was Jews, and he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And again, we touched on that in great deal about a month ago. Uh, you can go back and listen to that. I think it was called something about the gospel, Israel and me, or something to that effect. Um, but what you see there in, in verse 36 is the characteristic of Jesus' ministry, and that's compassion. Compassion. We read it at the end of Micah in our call to worship. Compassion comes out of mercy, comes out of the love of God. See, the ministry of Jesus 
okay, we, we have we can have a tendency as Baptists and in our current setting to get really robotic in the idea of the gospel. Sort of move away from the from the truth of affection. Like we all have affections, right? You have affections for your spouse, your children, for a lot of other things. But see, the gospel is not disconnected from affections. God has affections. The reason why you have affections is because you were made in the image of God who has affections. That's what Micah said. Compassion, love, mercy, steadfast mercy. So the characteristic of Jesus' ministry is compassion. Uh, without Jesus' affection for those whom he is saving... Passages like Philippians 2 and Hebrews 2 make no sense. Philippians 2, that's when Paul makes the charge or exhortation to the church at Philippi to show compassion, sympathy, selflessness, and love to one another, who does he point to? Christ. He points to the ministry of Christ, the condensation of Jesus. The condensation, that's not right. Help me out. The condescension. The con- okay, you got it. He, he, he comes down. He lowers himself. He humbles himself, right? And it's not just, it's not just a robotic movement from, from glory down, but it's out of compassion, sympathy, putting someone before yourself. Philippians 2 doesn't make sense if compassion is not a driver of the triune God to save, to bring forth a kingdom filled with saints. Same for Hebrews 2. Jesus calls the saints brothers, and he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Now, when you see the compassion of Jesus in verse 36, what is he compassionate about? He's compassionate about the results of wicked leadership within the Jewish people. He says that they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Again, we covered that in great detail about a month ago in that sermon, so we won't spend too much time on that. Maybe touch on it a little bit later. Um, then in verse 37, take a peek. Then Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So he sees the crowds and says, There is plenty to harvest. Verse 38, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, we I have to sort of make a, a reference, a theological reference or a interpretation reference here. As we go through Matthew, specifically in chapters 13 and 15, you're going to hear harvest language. And that's not the same sort of that's not the same reason he's bringing up harvest language now. In, in chapters 13 and 15, it's going to be regarding the end of the world, that harvest, where judgment will be made known and everlasting joy will also be made known. There will be a harvest in the end, as we'll see in 13 and 15, of weeds, and they will be gathered to be burned, and there will be a harvest of wheat which will be gathered for eternal storage in the barn, if you will, of the master. That's the harvest that he will be speaking of in chapters 13 and 15 and also in other places. 
There's also a common theme in the Old Testament regarding an eschatological harvest. When I say eschatological, I just mean a harvest at the end. When you hear the word eschatology or eschatological, we're talking about at the end. We're not having we're not talking about that kind of harvest. What Jesus means when he says the harvest is plentiful and he calls about laborers, the analogy is to highlight that there is work to be done. There's work to be done. And he's emphasizing in his analogy that there's a plentiful amount to be harvest harvested, but the laborers in contrast are few. That's what he says. The um, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Currently, at this point, Jesus is the lone preacher of the company. Right? He's the only one pro, uh, proclaiming the gospel. Um, it's basically Jesus versus the world at this moment, per se. But really, Jesus and all the towns in Judea and Galilee. One man trying to spread the gospel of the kingdom of heaven throughout the people of Israel. But we know and understand that that is not the design or the intention of Christ to be the one and the only proclaimer of the gospel. And we'll come more to that in a little bit. But notice what he does. He makes a declaration that there's much work to do and little workers. That's a problem. What would our... Strategy B. We got to figure this out. We got to get some heads together. We got to make a plan. Maybe a program or two. Maybe have an outreach event. We need to figure something out that's going to work to get the harvest in. Is that what he does? What does he say they need to do? Come on, it's one word. Tell me. Pray. Pray. Look what he says. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, therefore, you've got this abundance of work and this shortage of labors. Therefore, pray earnestly. So don't just pray, but you better pray. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out the laborers into his harvest. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. We're going to come back and think about that here at the end with some principles about prayer. Uh, but so let's let's move forward. But also, well, well, let me say this: we are a pretty pretty stubborn, prideful people, aren't we? Because like, when we see that type of problem, I I've been convicted greatly this week in thinking about this. It, it's as if it's as if we can see gospel ministry. How does how did the gospel ministry start? It started with a virgin birth. And then how does it sort of end? It ends with a resurrection. So think about those two bookends. A virgin birth and a resurrection. How much manpower can you do you need to accomplish those two things? You can't. So it begins with miraculous divine work. It ends with miraculous divine work. We must understand that when we come in or anyone else comes in or something's going to get done, it's not going to be in our own strength or in our power. It's going to be divine work. So pray to him who can accomplish 
With man it is impossible. With God, all things are possible, right? Chapter 10, verse 1. We'll move quickly here. And he called the, he called to his disciples, or he called, sorry, and he called to him himself twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James, Thaddeus, uh, Simon, and Judas, who betrayed, uh, betrayed him. Now, I don't want to get caught up in the names there today, uh, perhaps in the future. But here's what I want you to see first and foremost. So first, Jesus acknowledges the problem. He, he calls to prayer. But then what does he do after that? He goes into action. <laughs> prayer first. And then action. Here's what we don't need to be. A people who pray only. Now that sounds weird, right? But what what's the person who sits there and says, I'm going to pray but not do anything? When, in reality, we are called not to just pray, but to do. The, we, we have to think of it this way. It's a bit of a paradox, okay? Our calling into service before God. We must pray to the Lord because only He can accomplish His will, but yet He calls us to act, right? Only He can accomplish what is necessary, His will, but He calls us to act. God will accomplish all His purposes, but He has willed that His purposes be fulfilled by the actions of People. So we pray, we act, and while we act, what do we do? We pray. Right? Jesus goes on from a company of one to a company of thirteen. One preacher to thirteen as he commissions his twelve to be apostles, it says. He uh, Matthew uses the phrase or the term apostles. They're what in verse two, the names of the he initially verse one calls them disciples, then he calls them apostles. So just just a quick understanding of that word apostle. Did you know that Jesus is called an apostle in Hebrews chapter three? I believe Hebrews three says this consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Here's what we have to understand. The word apostle means it just means to be sent. To be a sent one. The son was sent by the father. John 8, Jesus says, I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the father taught me, as he who sent me is with me. Jesus can be classified as an apostle, but now he is making underneath his authority 12 more apostles. Okay? And in a broad sense, you are an apostle as well. All Christians, in a broad sense, are apostles because we're all sent to be messengers of the gospel. But we cannot get it backwards because I see some confused faces. The New Testament narrows very quickly how we ought to use the phrase, the word apostle. 
And ultimately, how the New Testament comes out in playing it is that we don't want to call people apostles who are not ordained as apostles in person by Jesus, right? That is who we call apostles uh, based on New Testament language, those who have been commissioned by Jesus himself. That was even Paul. Even after the death and resurrection of Christ, Jesus appeared to Paul personally, commissioned him personally. Paul makes that statement in his epistles. Okay, so now in verse 5, he's sending them. He's sending them. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom is at hand. Verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. So here's what Jesus didn't do. He didn't say, I commission you as apostles, now go and do. No, no, he equips his apostles. He, he informs, he instructs, but not only that, he extends his own authority and power to the twelve. He gives them his own authority, his own power. Look what he said. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. What, did he, what was being done in verse 35? Jesus went about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. And we also know, based on chapter 8, excuse me, he's also cleansing demons. I mean, excuse me, lepers and casting out demons. Jesus gives his authority and power to his apostles. He gives them his words to speak. He also gives them something else that belongs to him that we're going to see as we go through chapter 10. And that's his suffering. Not only are they given the authority to act on behalf of Christ and to heal diseases and cast out demons, not only are they taught the words which they are to speak and ultimately declare judgment upon those who reject them, but all in that they will also suffer with him. We'll see that as we move through chapter 10, especially next week when we get through 16 and 25. Well, just take a peek at verse 24 to get a taste. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house of Beelzebul, if they have called the master of the house of Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? And how does John puts it a different way? Uh, they hate, they will hate you, but they hated me first, right? Or in Romans eight, that's one I refer to quite often because I think it is a truth that we like to skirt around as cozy American evangelicals, which says that we are sons of God, children of God, and heirs with Christ, provided 
we suffer with him. Provided we suffer with him. So they are equipped with his power, his authority, his words, but also his suffering. And he gives them clear instruction. Their ministry will mimic what Jesus has been doing thus far. But the big difference is their work will point to him. They will proclaim and heal in the name of Jesus. At the end of this chapter, in verse 40, it says, Whoever receives you, speaking to the twelve, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. Do you see the breakdown of the apostleship there? Sent The Father sends the Son, the Son sends the twelve. If they receive the twelve, they receive the Son. If they receive the Son, they receive the Father. Now, what if they decide to proclaim another word? What do you think that cha- what happens to that chain? If they decide to leave and start preaching something else. That sort of breaks that chain, right? If they go and proclaim a gospel different from what he has said, and they receive that word, did they receive Christ? By no means. They did not receive Christ. They have not received the Father. This is why it is so important that when in in, in pastoring and preaching and teaching your children and evangelizing your neighbor, if you separate anything that you're doing to them from the Word of Christ, if your hope is to give the, if you're wanting to give them hope but separate it from the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are giving them nothing. You're giving them fool's gold. No hope whatsoever. And this is why it's so important. This is why a mark of a true church is one that rightly preaches the word of God. Verse 5, move on. Acquire no gold or silver for, or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. Okay, so this one's kind of interesting. Uh, it, we could really get lost in this, but I just want to make a point here. And if you if you looked at the getting ready for Sunday post this week, which I admit came out yesterday morning, so you had 24 hours to get ready. Um, but and I made this distinction before. There's a distinction in 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 reading scripture and separating what we would call descriptive passages from prescriptive passages. Here's the best way to illustrate it. A story describes events. Your pharmacist prescribes medicine you need to take. So there is sort of being informed, the descriptive, and being instructed, the prescriptive. The... the, uh, Okay... Take Jonah. Do you need to be swallowed by a big fish in order to take the gospel to a foreign land? No. Is there good general principles we can learn from Jonah's disobedience which got him in the mouth of the fish? Absolutely. But it's a descriptive passage to teach us something about God and redemption. Okay, It's not go do it this way. Same thing happens here. 
this these verses verses what did I say five and I'm sorry nine and ten these are not a set standard for gospel ministry evangelism missions or anything of that nature you don't have to worry about what if you're taking this amount of sandals or this this many tunics or if you're not acquiring this or putting this on your bag or your belt it's not the standard it's instructions that are specific to this event now there are principles we can gather from it and i hope that we can here towards the end um but then the question is is asked if you're reading your bible at home how do you know if a certain passage is Describing something for you to know or telling you something you better do. How do you know what's descriptive and what's prescriptive? Well, you better read your Bible more. Because, here's here's the point. You have to know the whole counsel of God. You have to know more about the Word of God in, in order to understand whether or not something is for you to take in as far as information or for something that you need to obey. Let's say you're a new Christian and for some reason you have a copy of Matthew chapter 10 and you really want to go evangelize the next town. And you read Matthew chapter 10 and you're like, okay, well I can't acquire gold or silver. I can't put a bag on my belt. I can't have two tunics. I can't wear sandals. I can't have a staff. You think if that Matthew 10 is all you have, that that's how you have to go and evangelize the community next to you. But then, as you're getting geared up, someone says, you should read the epistles. And then you understand, and you open the book of Acts. And okay, that this isn't the way of witnessing or going on mission, but that was this is descriptive of something specific to Jesus' time with the twelve. It takes knowing your Bible to understand what is information for your benefit or instruction you must obey. So that's, that's, well, let me give you a practical example. Did you know that there are passages in the Bible that express snake handling? And do you know that someone can make a biblical argument based on certain passages in the scriptures that in order to show your true faith, you must handle poisonous snakes? If you are not familiar with your scriptures and you don't know the difference between descriptive and prescriptive, someone could almost convince you that you must handle a serpent. It's not true. So when Paul says to the Ephesians that... Uh, Christ has given gifts to the church, uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, for the sake of building up the body of Christ, for edifying the saints for the work of ministry. He also says, so that as you grow together in maturity, you're not tossed to and fro by every wind and wave and doctrine, like snake handling. And that's just one of many different doctrines that you can be fooled by because there's part, it's in there, but without understanding the whole counsel of God, you could be, be deceived by such doctrines or human cunning, as Paul would say. Um, so, okay, so we get to verse 11. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, 
greet it. Verse 13, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon you. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. Now, the question that you've got to sort of consider here is what is this measure of worthiness that Jesus is referring to? Now, we just have to throw out the measure of righteousness as the worthiness. Jesus doesn't say if they're worthy of God or the kingdom, then say that to them. There is none righteous, no, not one. The apostles aren't going knocking and examining the lives of those whom they are going to evangelize and say, are you worthy of the gospel? (laughs) No, that's why there's a gospel. Because there is no one worthy. And if that was the case, that they were to go and examine uh, the people that they were to witness to, then there would be no one to give the gospel to. It would appear that those who are worthy are those who, in meeting the apostles, the messengers, and hearing the message, are not rejecting them, sending them away, but receiving them, and not just receiving them, but being hospitable. Because he says, as you enter the house, or I'm sorry, he says at the end of 10, for a laborer deserves his food. And so the understanding is that Whoever receives them, if they're worthy, will be hospitable to them as well. Um, But then look what he says in verse 14 and 15 regarding those who refuse or reject the apostles. Verse 14, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Not only do they go with the gospel of the kingdom, but as the kingdom of God comes near, judgment comes near for those who reject. Okay, which gets us to the end of that section. Now quickly, just a little... Theological talk about the gospel of the kingdom or the kingdom of heaven, okay? Um, And that's something that I hope that will become more clear to us. If someone said to you, hey, can you explain to me what the kingdom of God is? Would you be able to answer? That's a tough one. It's a tough one. And so I'm hoping as we go through Matthew, we're going to be able to have a a greater understanding of the the kingdom of heaven, uh, but also the message that comes along with it, the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. So there's a few things that kind of come, that step out to us, that, that jump out to us uh, regarding the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Matthew refers to it as the kingdom of heaven, while the other uh, writers, Mark and Luke, mainly refer to it as the kingdom of God. Here's a few things that jump out to us. Number one, there was an expectation of a coming kingdom among Israel. This wasn't necessarily a surprise, per se, when they hear someone say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why? Because they were looking for it. They'd been looking for it for a while now. God made a promise to to, uh, David that through his son would be an eternal kingdom. 
And also in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel, uh, in interpreting the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, says that there will be a kingdom that will come that will overthrow all earthly kingdoms and then will never be removed or overcome. They were looking, Israel was looking for a kingdom to come, but maybe just not the way that Jesus was bringing it. Uh, Another thing that pops out regarding the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is the word authority. Authority. Again, this is really closely connected to Israel's history. Who rules the kingdom of heaven? It is God. It is God. It is ruled by God. So not only was Israel expecting a kingdom, but from their these promises and prophecies, they were expecting a king to bring in that kingdom or a Messiah or what the New Testament calls the Christ. He was to be the one to inaugurate or establish that kingdom. If you're unfamiliar with the old, your Old Testament, you're missing out on the fulfillment of God's will and purpose in the New Testament that comes that, that is that is fulfilled in the New Testament through Jesus Christ. But there's a pretty good possibility that Israel, as they were looking for this kingdom and they were looking for this king, that they didn't realize that it was actually going to be God who would be their king. See, the design of God's people beginning with Israel and through now, has always, be, has always been that God is the head. Right? Christ is the head of the church. Always the design was that God would be the head. Remember, Israel had no king. The design was God was their king. What did they want? They wanted to be like everyone else and have a king. God knew that was coming, but God... God reminded them, you asked for a king, beware what you wish for. And from that moment, as God gave them leaders as they asked for, they have had problems with kings. Not just kings, but all kinds of leaders that Israel has. Because Israel's uh, main offices were king, prophet, and priest. And if you're familiar with the, the Old Testament, you understand that there was always problems with bad kings, bad prophets, and bad priests. We looked at Ezekiel 34 when we got to this passage a month ago or so um, regarding the helpless and harassed sheep of Israel. Who was harassing them? Their shepherds, their leaders. Dan referred to it in Numbers, what was it, 27 last Sunday school regarding... Um, uh, Maybe that was two Sundays ago with Moses laying hands on Joshua and talked about um, guarding against or fighting against the, the, the leaders or shepherds of Israel who would harass and, and, um, and hurt them. There's another one in Micah chapter 3. I want to read this one to you. I would highly, highly recommend that you go and read Micah this week, chapters 1 through 7. It is... From my understanding, from my study, it seems as if Jesus is leaning into Micah all throughout this chapter. Micah, uh, it, let me read it for you. It might take you a minute to get there, but it's in chapter 3. He says, in warning and judgment to Israel, which Micah is 
is that. It is a book of warning Israel, telling them of the impending judgment, and then telling them of the coming hope. Three times, three sections it does that. And here in chapter 3, he says, Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads, its rulers, give judgment for a bride. So, bribe. So we have judges who give judgment for money. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. They're buying a good prophecy. Verse 12, Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house of a wooden height. If you go on and read chapter 4, you see the hope that is to come. But what is clear is that Israel has had a problem with its leaders for a while. So here is what we see. I think it's very interesting that Jesus not only passes down his authority, but I think he's giving instruction on how they are to handle that authority. What is, what is very bad? Someone who has authority but does not know how to handle it. That's the leaders of Israel for years and years and years. So now you have Jesus, the head, the king, the prophet, the priest and not he doesn't it, it he takes that authority and then passes it down but doesn't just pass down the authority but says this is how you hold that authority notice back in verse 8 sorry yeah the end of 8 look what he says to the apostles as he's sending them after he says you're going to be able to heal people cast out demons cleanse lepers he says how did you get that You didn't pay for it, so don't ask for money for it. Big contrast to Micah 3. And then he says, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. It's almost as if Jesus knows the PTSD that Israel is under when it comes to when a prophet comes jingling his bag. It's as if he knows we will show Israel and ultimately the world the authority and rule of God and that it is not lorded over people but that is it is handled it is cared for and it's then when it is most successful fathers husbands God's given you authority he's given you authority to shepherd your family If you attempt to hold and act in that authority apart from obeying the instructions of God, your family, your spouse, your kids will look similar to the crowds that Jesus has compassion on. They will be harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Love your wives in authority as Christ loved the church in sacrificial love. 
Hold authority over your children, but do it, as Paul says, not provoking them to anger or leading them to discouragement. Hey, dads, the righteousness of or the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Your your anger, angry tone, your angry face is not going to get the righteousness, the obedience that you want from your children. We learn that the hard way. Your authority is greater when you are in control of it. The kingdom of heaven is one with righteous rules, with true authority, and we are called to submit to it and then also uh, rule righteously when in authority. Um, quickly, I just want to let you know of a, a, uh, one more thing within the kingdom of the the kingdom of heaven the kingdom of god and that's that it is a pure kingdom it is established in holiness and righteousness it's a kingdom without sin evil or its effects this is a theme that began in matthew when the angel declared to joseph what he will save his people from their sins and that's why the gospel proclamation of Jesus and also John the Baptist is prefaced with this word. What is it? Repent. Repent. Because the kingdom of heaven has nothing to do with sin or evil. And Jesus brings this message to Israel, and guess which way they're going? Opposite of the kingdom of God. And so what does Jesus say to them? Turn. Repent. That's what that word repent means, is to turn away from and turn towards something. Turn away from the way that... And here's the thing. Who sent them on that path? Yeah, we can say the heads of Israel, but guess what they kept doing? Walking down that path. See, God declares judgment on the heads of Israel. But what does he say to Jerusalem? You get the woes to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. And then he, and then it's as if he turns around and looks at the city. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills. See, he doesn't lay it all on the leaders. The city that kills the prophets and stones those. Because there were some good prophets. And stone those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as hens gather her brood under her wings and were not willing. See... Your house is left to you desolate. And what does the next chapter tell us? Not one stone will be left unturned of your temple. Your house has been left to you desolate. The, the message about the message of the kingdom of God, and I'll conclude here, comes, and we'll see it as we as we work through chapter ten. The message of the kingdom of God brings about division and opposition. That's why he tells them there's an opportunity to let peace fall on upon a house and a town, but there's also the opportunity of judgment upon a land who rejects you. If they will not repent, judgment will come upon them. Therefore, the message is repent Repent to the words of Christ, and they will lead you in the right direction. What does Jesus say 
will withhold judgment in Matthew 7. Those who hear the word of God and does them. Those who hears my words and do them. Turn towards the words of Christ. But we must we must understand, I cannot I cannot miss this point. That Christ's message and power and authority was not the only thing needed for a successful ministry of the gospel and the kingdom of heaven. But righteousness and sacrifice, atonement, repentance apart with apart from the covering of the Lamb of God is nothing. But Christ came, the Lamb of God, to take away the sins of the world, so that for those who repent will be covered and cleansed. And that those who follow him who believe in him by faith, will be counted as righteous because the kingdom of heaven is without sin and evil and its effects. Why do you think he, he healed the sick, raised the dead, cleansed the lepers and cast out demons? Giving them a taste of the kingdom of heaven where sin and wickedness have no effect or no power. Now, I have principles of application. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna read them to you, but they are in the charge and benediction. So I'm gonna give you the charge right now. It's very simple. Depend and trust. Depend and trust. What does that equal? That's faith. As you go to do gospel ministry, pray and read, believe and proclaim. Do gospel ministry when you change a diaper. Trust God when you change a diaper. When you clock in, proclaim the gospel. When you walk through the grocery aisle, do gospel ministry in faith. I think that's the big thing that Jesus was teaching these apostles as he was sending them. Depend on him and trust his results. Be obedient to his word. Let's pray.